nice to be with you, bring you greetings from the brethren in Asheville with whom we were last weekend, or at least those who didn't go camping at Cherokee. Uh, they are well and send their greetings. Next Tuesday is a very important day. It's August the 1st, but it's also Tisha B'Av, which is the ninth of the Hebrew month of, and it's a date of commemoration by the uh, Jewish community of the destruction of a temple built by Solomon, the hands of the Babylonian forces of Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, subsequently in 69-70 AD, the destruction of the temple by Herod on exactly the same date. And it is a day that is commemorated throughout Jewish history as a time of calamity. I don't want to speak about that particular event today, but I do wish to speak of why such a calamity can happen within our society. The reasons, the justifications that existed in the late or the, the, the early 6th century before Christ are extant today in our society. Now, talking about this particular subject, I'd like to describe the universe in which I grew up in. A universe which Mr. Ames and Mr. Davis and their wives and those of us with graying, balding hairlines and uh, spouses can identify. When I grew up, the idea of divorce was unknown to me. If I look back in my childhood years, I eventually knew of one person who had been divorced. They moved across the street from us, a single mother and her son, with whom I guess I got to play or he went to school, etc. And father would turn up occasionally. Now, it's rather interestingly because before that, I had lived next to a boy in my same class who lived with his mother and grandfather. There was never any comment about divorce. I guess the assumption was father had died in the war. He was, the lady was a war widow. But the idea of divorce was totally unknown in my childhood. The same is true, you might say, of various other events that have come across the scene of our culture in those intervening years. Abortion. You know, a 12-year-old boy didn't know what abortion was in any way whatsoever. Did abortion occur? Of course it did. Clapham Common and uh, coat hangers was a known in the United Kingdom in terms of a venue for abortion. And of course, if you have the money, it could be done all sort of discreetly, etc., uh, in the uh, private offices of doctors who would be so obliged to uh, take care of those matters. Feminism, the aspects of race that were to develop later on, more recently, the aspect of gay rights, LBGT, all of these things were unknown. They were spoken about, if at all, in very hushed tones. And it's worth our while asking, 
why have the floodgates of society opened in the way they have since the end of the Second World War? The things which were now, were then unspeakable about in polite company are now accepted wherever you are. In addressing this subject, I want to speak especially to the youth. You're back from camp. Your involvement in camp, either as a counselor or a camper itself, you're full of life. You're full of idealism as well. Why speak about these things to you? The answer to that is the fact that the mobilizing of youth today is seen as being the way to change culture and laws. We have seen that occur within this country within recent political elections. The use of social media to harness and mobilize young people for a particular end. The United Kingdom has just experienced it as well and the way in which Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, was able to mobilize young people to his cause and have them vote Labour in such a way that the Tories were no longer able to effectively govern as they had hoped. Why is this? Why is this important uh, for the uh, young people? Why is it important for old cronies like myself and the rest of us in the audience? Let me sum it up for you very briefly in a nutshell. In society today, as one person expressed it, Fairness is given greater importance than loyalty and restraint. What is seen to be fair? Now, let me unpack that for you. When people talk about fairness in terms of the culture in which we live, they're talking about the concern for the rights of others. Or if we put it in terms of a biblical mandate, you might say the second great commandment. Now, I use that for your point of reference, not because society uses that point of reference. But I want you to be able to appreciate it in terms of our speak within the church. How does society's lingo line up, you might say correlate, with what we talk about within the church so when they talk about fairness, they're talking about concern for others. And so uh, that idea, fairness, is given much greater importance than loyalty and restraint, which we might express as being the sum of the first section of God's law. In other words, love towards God. So in other words, society favors the second aspect of the law, loving your neighbor rather than loving God. Now, of course, God doesn't come into it for them, but I just want to help you understand it in terms of the way in which we speak. More appropriately, fairness is, equal, is equated with tolerance. You will tolerate somebody else's behavior because it doesn't affect me. They're free to do whatever they like. And so as this particular writer said, when two different moral foundations rub up against each other, 
Fairness always wins. So young people, the society into which you are marching in the near future is a society in which fairness, tolerance towards others is the hallmark. All right, this particular writer used some very interesting examples. He said, if homosexual acts are regarded as dissolute, while such restrictions on such acts are seen as causing undue harm to homosexuals, the outcome is clear. You've got to be fair to homosexuals. You've got to tolerate them. If there are laws against them, we have got to be mobilized to change those laws in a very important way so that homosexuals can be homosexuals. LBGT can be whatever they want and carry on. Similarly, he said, if intermarriage is regarded as a betrayal of tribal loyalty, restrictions on intermarriage are seen as intolerant and therefore must be removed. Now, this is a question that rises frequently within the church. Why can't I marry somebody outside? Let me give you an example of my own experience. It was 1973. I was organizing a feast site in Rhodesia at Victoria Falls. We had a young man who was, it was his first feast. He had had an incredible experience in getting to the feast site from Mozambique, which was a country next door, but he wasn't a Mozambique and he was a Malawian, which meant he had to go to Malawi to get a passport to be valid to travel into Rhodesia to keep the feast. And it took him three or four weeks from the time he left home to the time he got to the feast site. Uh, you know, incredible story to stop and listen to. And one evening during the feast, I was with the single men and we were sitting around a campfire in uh, the evening and sort of having a question and answer session. And this young man said, what's wrong with me marrying somebody outside the church? And before I could open my mouth, something happened. Because what I didn't tell you was, the single men were single men at the feast. They weren't single men at home. They were all married men. And they proceeded to tell him what life was like married to an unconverted person. And I sat there with my mouth wide open because it was a great lesson for me. Don't be too quick with an answer. And the wisdom of these sage old men sitting around the campfire explaining to this young man the problems of being married to someone who doesn't believe as you believe. Now, their wives weren't witches. You know, they were a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church or the Salvation Army Church, whatever the case may be. In fact, one of them, when they arrived at the feast site, came up to me and said, Mr. Nathan, I have a problem. I have no clothes. My wife ran off with all my clothes before I could pack to come to the feast. There's a problem for you. If I had more time, I would explain the rest of the backside of the story because it's really interesting and so forth. But, you know, people today, it's not fair that you can't marry somebody outside the faith. And, of course, this is not a person 
part of our faith that I'm reading from. He is from a different culture and a different faith altogether. But it is a fascinating aspect. Fairness, this idea of fairness when it's used in terms of our culture today, entails what could be described as the autonomous nature of the individual. And our law in this country today encourages that. I have a couple of articles here that uh, I could read to you from. The one appeared in the uh, magazine called First Things this past week. And it's entitled Dying of Despair. And it talks about the problem of suicide in affluent societies and depressed societies. And the, the particular author of this, who is a psychologist himself, he goes on and he describes, he said, in our merit, meritocratic age, we are valued for our usefulness. And he goes on and talks about that's true whether you're in Palo Alto or West Virginia. Excuse me, Mr. Ruddleston. Um, your usefulness is determined by your SAT score and your earning power. If you don't have that, you're nothing. You can't make a contribution. He said, the law is a teacher, and American law increasingly teaches indifference to life when it, come, when it runs up against the respect for radical autonomy. You're right as an individual. Quite a, an interesting point to consider. So this aspect of autonomy and uh, so forth is something we need to be aware of. Of course, the other side of that is or the, the problem of this fairness or the opposite of fairness is seen as harm. Because you don't tolerate another person, you're harming them. And that is wrong. So what does the Bible say about fairness? And how does fairness then tie into the ninth of Av? Let's start with Paul. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1. Where Paul makes a comment about fairness. And he's talking to masters. Masters are people with power and control in life. He said, masters, give your bondservants... What is just and fair? So fairness is coupled in the first instance with a sense of equity, justness. In fact, some of the uh, translations uh, translate that word rather than just as it is in the New King James. Give them a sense of equity. Knowing, as he said, that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul links fairness to two elements. Firstly, it has to be linked to equity. Secondly, it has to be a reflection of the way in which we are treated by our Father in heaven. So nothing exists of and by itself. It's rather interesting because as I was looking at some of these points about the autonomous nature of the individual, my mind went back to a song we used to have in college days, in Ambassador College. No man is an island. No man stands alone. And so on it goes. So I started to look it up and find out who the author of it was, who wrote the lyrics, because it was part of almost every social activity we had. 
I found there were two, in fact, sets of lyrics. One by 10 Avenue North. And that, those particular lyrics were sung by Joan Baez, who you might say was one of the forerunners and one of the four leaders in terms of this idea of fairness and tolerance in society. The other that we sang was a uh, different set of lyrics by a man called Dennis Brown. And surprise, surprise, if you compare the lyrics, they're quite contradictory. Um, So we we had uh, this aspect back in college days in the late 60s, early 70s, the idea that no man was an island. That's a reality. We have to realize we do not exist by ourselves. We are not autonomous human beings. We serve a greater master, our eternal father. And we have to reflect his way of life, his way of life in our actions and what we do and how we conduct ourselves. And so the apostle Paul says, your fairness has got to be coupled with equity. Now, if you come back and you look in the uh, scriptures, Isaiah chapter 11, we look at uh, the aspect of Jesus Christ, the prophecies of Jesus Christ. How is Jesus going to rule the world? Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 through 5, it talks about the Messiah coming, the one we understand as Jesus Christ. It talks about how the spirit of the eternal is going to rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. He is going to be driven by the power of God, the Father's Holy Spirit. His delight, it says, is in the fear of the eternal. He will not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity. For the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his loins. And faithfulness the belt of his waist. So Jesus Christ is coming with this aspect of equity. And what do we mean by equity? The Hebrew word that is translated as equity. equity comes from making a straight line. A level playing field, if we want to use the vernacular of today. People are not penalized because of who they are or where they came from, as the case may be. Equity describes a life without man-made obstacles thrown up to hinder them in any way whatsoever. We can find it being explained for us quite easily in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 4 as an example, where he said, every, every valley will be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight. Okay, so there's going to be a great change in England, uh, Mrs. Weston. Driving will be so much easier over there in the millennium. And, and in Charlotte, might I say. <laughs> uh, the crooked places will be made straight. The rough places made smooth. So the things that create difficulties for people in life are going to be ironed out and removed in a remarkable way. You can see that being uh, uh, emphasized again in Isaiah 42, verse 16. 
He talks about how he'll bring the blind by a way they did not know. I'll lead them in paths that have not known. I will make darkness light before them, the crooked places straight. So we're using the same word that is translated equity. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. I want to take care of people in a remarkable way. So how do these things relate to us? On the eve of the ninth of Av, the uh, Jews in the synagogue will read from Isaiah chapter 1. It's a very important scripture to understand. You know some of the content of it because it's one of those scriptures we use and we use to defend our keeping of the holy days. But turn to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10 and we'll read through verse 17. And here is Isaiah, a prophet in Jerusalem, saying to the people of Jerusalem and of Judah in particular, and to you and me today. And I want you to think of it in terms of today, in terms of what Isaiah says. He says, hear the word of the eternal, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. In other words, there was something unsettling in terms of what Isaiah saw in the people of his day. They were like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the eternal inspired him to say that for our benefit as well. And he said, to what purpose is, your, is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the eternal. Okay, so here were a people who had a, 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 an air of godliness to them, but yet they didn't follow God's ways. It was autonomous, you might say. It was tolerant. They did what pleased them. And if you want to see the way in which they did that, read the book of Lamentations, because that sets it out very clearly for us. And so says the, the, the eternal says, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? He said, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me, the new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies or festivals. I can endure iniquity I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. He said, you're living a double life. You're trying to make the appearance of living a godly way of life. And at the same time, you're enduring iniquity. And he said, I will not tolerate it in any way whatsoever. He said, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing of them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. You don't appreciate the value of human life in any way whatsoever. He said, wash yourself and make yourselves clean. Put away the evils of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek Justice, true justice, godly justice, not fairness. Rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, 
plea for the widow. So we have this, this remarkable statement where the eternal through Isaiah sets out very clearly for the people that they can't walk in a two-minded way, have the appearance of living a godly way of life and at the same time living the very antithesis of a godly way of life. As Paul said, conduct yourself with just, with equity and fairness. And remember, you have a father in heaven. Consider how he treats you. We're not alone. We're not by ourselves. I'd like you to turn from Isaiah. I'd like you to turn from that to uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18. While you're returning to Ezekiel chapter 18, you need to realize that Ezekiel was writing this just before the destruction of Jerusalem. If we turn over to chapter 24, he gets news that the temple has been destroyed. So what Ezekiel is saying here is being given literally in the context of the 9th, the 10th of Av, in which the temple was destroyed. This particular time of year. So how long beforehand? I don't have an answer right off the top of my head. But this is immediately prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. And notice what Ezekiel has to write. What Ezekiel is inspired to write as he speaks to these people. Verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the eternal is not fair. If the way of the eternal is not fair, whose way is fair? I am the one who understands what fairness is. The eternal says, the shoe is on the other foot. You're the one who has a problem with an understanding of fairness. Now, this concept of fear that is used here in Hebrew, in Ezekiel 18, comes from the idea of a balance, a weight, a true weight. So, in other words, we might talk about balance. Some of us are old enough to, to, to remember those scales in the greengrocer's shop or the shops where things got weighed out and someone put a pound weight on one side and you would keep on filling up the bag on the other side until it became level. Or the guy who used to go around with a gallon can to the petrol station or the gas station, excuse me, and fill up a gallon of uh, gas out of a pump and see whether the meter was reading correctly. You know, we still use these mechanisms maybe in a more sophisticated way these days. But when he talks about being fair, he's talking about this right balance, this equity that is essential. And so he carries on in verse 26. He said, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. You're not going to have a part in the first resurrection of you die in iniquity. Period. Again, on the other hand, when a wicked man turns away from a right wickedness which he's committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. 
he shall surely live and shall not die. Verse 29, he said, yet the house of Israel says, the way of eternal isn't fair. I ought to get credit for all of the times I was righteous. And you ought to get demerit points for all of the time you were unrighteous. The eternal says, that's not the way I've set it up. You've got to be righteous to the end. Very important. So he repeats that aspect, O house of Israel, it is not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the eternal God. Repent and turn from your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. You want real fairness? That's where it begins. A new heart and a new spirit as a result of repentance and being able to live God's way of life. So the eternal says to them, oh, Israel, house of Israel, why should you die? I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the eternal God. Therefore, turn and live. Here's the options for you. You're not an autonomous human being able to do whatever you want. I hold the final card. I say what happens in terms of your life. Do you see, the idea of God is no longer acceptable to people. The article I just read to you of dying of despair, someone summarized it and they headlined it, Losing their religion, Americans are dying of despair. Why are we dying of despair? Because economic worth is worth more than religion. He says in his article, he said, we now have a sizable body of medical research which suggests that prayer, religious faith, participation in a religious community and practices like cultivating gratitude, forgiveness, and other virtues can reduce the risk of depression, lower the risk of suicide, diminish drug abuse, and aid in recovery. Wow. But we don't want that, do we? Uh, Dr. Winnale sent out a, uh, an article the other day, a summary from a Gallup organization, Record few Americans believe Bible is literal word of God. Why? Because they see the Bible as being too intolerant. It doesn't allow them to be the autonomous people that they want to be in any way whatsoever. This man in his article on despair goes on. He said, uh, there are straightforward reasons why religious practice protects against suicide. It's a social activity. Being here today with other people is a social activity. It binds us together in a very powerful way. It protects each and every one of us against loneliness and isolation. And he said hope, which gathering together like this ensures, cannot be delivered by a medical prescription. You can't get it out of a bottle no matter what the shape of a bottle might be, no matter what the label on the bottle says it is. Hope 
comes from a relationship with the eternal. He is the one who understands what true fairness is all about and how we should apply to it. You can read a little more of this uh, in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10 through 20, this aspect of fairness. Now, of course, we're told that we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. The idea of fairness and it's not fair, which every parent hears all too early in life, appears very early in the biblical account. Because one reads the account of Cain and his dealings with the eternal, one has to conclude that Cain was saying to the eternal, you're not fair. This aspect of fairness. The apostle John summed it up very clearly in in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, where he talked about Cain, who was the wicked one. He had allowed Satan's influence to get to his mind. He didn't see God as being fair, and he saw the solution to the problem as murdering his brother, Abel. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. He got caught up in what is fair and what is not fair. I want to determine myself what is fair rather than allow the eternal to determine what is fair. So next week, the Jewish communities, the observant Jews in those communities will keep the fast of the ninth of Ab. They will remember the destruction of Solomon's temple, the destruction of Herod's temple. They will remember the expulsion of the Jews from England under King John. They will remember the expulsion of the Jews from the Iberian Peninsula in 1490. They will remember all of these events that have been tied in to the ninth of Ab. There's one thing you've got to give them credit for, that our politicians, our opinion formers and makers, those who set, you might say, the cultural agenda for our society fail to remember. It's a lesson we forget at our own peril. And I quote from a uh, Jewish website in saying this. He said, what do, what do you make of all this? Jews see all of these calamities associated with the Ninth of Av as another confirmation of the deeply held conviction that history isn't haphazard. It just doesn't occur by accident. Events, even terrible events, are part of a divine plan and have spiritual meaning. The message of time is that everything has a rational purpose, even though we don't understand it. Put it another way, we have a God. We worship a God who is involved in our lives, period. Don't forget that. We don't keep the fast of the ninth of Av, but we keep the godly ordained and commanded laws for exactly the same purpose. 
to realize and to remember that our God, our Father, is involved in our lives. He has a plan for each and every one of us. And we need to be alert to that in our own lives. He wants to help us and direct us, not in our own paths, not in a sense of autonomy and toleration where anything can go, but in a path that he has laid out for us through his law and through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. It's up to us to ensure that our concept of fairness is not in harmony with this world's ideas of fairness, but it's in harmony with our Heavenly Father's ideas of fairness. And young people, that will be a challenge that will be asked of you time and time again as you live your lives. It's up to us to make sure that our ideas of fairness are shaped and formed by our Father. That those ideas of fairness accomplish the same ends and purposes of our Heavenly Father, rather than just what appears good at this moment in time. 